series, the 1993 talks, reflections, dialogues, discussions. Somebody was saying the other day that the dialogue is is the appropriate term because that's the kind of when you each person uh, is able to you kind of listen to each other and talk uh, to each other and then in, in, with a mutual interest of listening understanding and then discussions that is from the Greek word discus which means to throw things at somebody there's different ways of uh, you can you see people talking uh, having discussions and it does like that sometimes people just kind of throwing their words at somebody else and and I, I mean, I've, sometimes you feel that people don't listen to each other, they just talk at each other. And uh, living in a community, of course, this is even more apparent, where you're very much aware of, we have to live closely with people, uh, and where we, we all kind of are to blame. We all have our days of talking at each other and, and throwing discuses, throwing discs at each other. Or then what really works is is a dialogue or to to have way of listening and just and inevitably one has to use the word discuss <laughs> but uh, listening and trying to understand and listen beyond just the the kind of meaning or the the superficial impression one gets. I've made many mistakes by just taking things too superficially, by just listening to the, to the surface or what somebody might be just saying on a verbal level and oftentimes miss the point of what they're actually saying because you, you're taking it too literally or you're not really listening. You're more, you find yourself reacting to, to what people say and then kind of saying something back out of a reaction. And then the Buddha's uh, emphasis on reflection. And this, uh, the reflexive mind, this is the, the Buddha emphasized the using of this ability to reflect and contemplate on the feeling, on the meaning, on the movement of life. They used words like sati and sampachanya, these word, Pali words, convey that, that ability of reflexive thinking and contemplation. Like sati is the ability to bring into your mind the, the conditions affecting you, the, the time, the place, the mood, the, the uh, people, the, the situation you're in. And Sampachanya has been able to keep aware, kind of, of self-observation, ability to to sustain a, an awareness around what you're actually feeling or what's actually happening inside you. Uh, so that this, uh, this ability to, to reflect, reflection, contemplation, uh, brings us to that point where we begin to have insight. We begin to understand things in a deeper way, not just be caught up in maybe just the definitions or uh, intellectual definitions of, of terms or or it's so easy to take everything for granted that because they uh, say for most of us English is our native tongue we we're kind of conditioned to think in English and, and therefore we think we really understand it or a lot of times the, 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 your native tongue is merely just an, a, a mental habit you've developed Till you start contemplating it more, trying to to use, uh, say, the language as a as a means of communication, to try to to use it in, in a skillful way, so that what you're feeling or what's happening to you, what you're thinking, is you're being able to maybe convey that to somebody else, to communicate with somebody else. We can see that some the problems of the world that we face are just the the prejudiced assumptions we make and the, the
the biases and the 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 way that we we can come from very fixed prejudgments or viewpoints have a, have a, a prejudice against something that influences us and so that we don't even hear what somebody is saying we're merely hearing what we think they're saying because we've already decided that they're this way or that way so you can see like with problems in developing relations between the Israelis and the Palestinians or the Serbs and the Croats and the Bosnian Muslims and on and on the endless the, the old Cold War of the Soviet Union and the West uh, just the way we we already had our views our opinions about them and tended to interpret everything they did in from that bias always seeing it from from that distortion of bias and assumption rather than being aware of that like with us sati and sampachanya you can actually be aware if if you if you are if you do have a bias suddenly you realize yeah i've I've already, I'm projecting onto this person. I already have an opinion about this person. And you begin to feel it. You begin to be aware of your own uh, tendency to speak from a position or to have a particular hidden agenda, as they say now. Particular message that you want to throw at somebody. So... These uh, talks in the afternoon here at Amravati are, are for contemplation, you know, opening on the mind to listen and to uh, watch your own reaction, not to, to just uh, think in terms of going along with what I say or objecting to it, but just, uh, just seeing how it, what it does to your mind, what, what it, uh, how you respond to it or how you emotionally react to it. Meditation in daily life. I thought this would be a good title for the last talk because you know, the, now you can... You, this is... Uh, meditation is, is a subject that has uh, now become quite respectable in Britain. When I came to Britain 17 years ago, it was... Uh, it wasn't quite, it didn't have the same respectability as it does now. <laughs> it was a, you know, people thought it was a very odd thing to be doing, meditating. Uh, but it shows that, that over, you know, just a, in a short period of time, really, uh, something has changed in this country, an attitude. And meditation is now something that, that you hear uh, many people talking about and interested in or Many people go on meditation retreats. There's an interest in, in the mind itself, in trying to understand and trying to learn how to live with it, with oneself. Remember, with somebody else, we only have to live with them sometimes, but we have to be with ourselves all the time. And so, even though somebody else might be difficult, usually it's our minds that give us the most amount of suffering and problems, at least as far as I'm concerned, I've, uh, I've given myself more problems and created more misery in my mind than anyone else I can ever think of. Nobody I know of has been as relentlessly critical to me as I have been to myself. <laughs> so learning how to live with myself uh, and learning how to meditate. Meditation implies some kind of mental uh, activity. And it can be, you know, we, we think of it in, in various terms of, uh, of meditating on a subject. Uh, like in Christian meditation, oftentimes it's on the, the sorrows and joys of, of, uh, uh, of the Christ. Or certain subjects, religious subjects, one can meditate upon. And in um, Buddhism, it's it's a f way of of realizing the Dhamma, or the aim of Buddhist meditation is towards a profound realization of the truth. 
And the truth then is, is something that only you can realize for yourself. It's not truth that, that other people tell you are truth. Not, it's not given to you by somebody else. It's, it's a realization. And so to realize something means that, that uh, you, you need to become fully aware, fully familiar with the way you are. Not as a person, not analyzing yourself as a personality, uh, because then, then we then we get back into you know, all kinds of uh, problems about ourselves as personalities. But the way it actually is as a human being, being born in this form, living within a human body the way it is, with its uh, senses, its sensitivity, its intelligence, its emotions, its instincts, and so forth, how to how to get to understand and know this very being that we live with all the time, but sometimes we, we understand ourselves the, the least. Sometimes it's easier to understand the, the dog or the cat better than it is ourselves. Because to get to know oneself truly, we have to get beyond just what we think about ourselves or we assume about ourselves. The, the assumptions you have about what you are, what you should be, or what you shouldn't be. And get to the very ground of, of being, of this conscious experience, and the feeling of it, the sensitivity of it, so that you, you are, you're, you're, you're looking at it, reflecting upon it, contemplating it as it is, with no standard of how it should be, you know, that it, it should be some, some fit to some level of ideal or of perfection uh, that uh, you only, uh, you know, that you compare, you might think it should be. But with reflective meditation, we're, we're contemplating the way it actually is. Even if it isn't very nice, we're still contemplating it for what it is, not saying it should be otherwise, but recognizing that sensitivity itself is the experience of, of this range of pleasure and pain, of happiness and suffering, that every that human life is this way. It always has been and always will be for all of us, from the most privileged human beings to the most unfortunate ones. We still have this range of experience from the from very uh, high kind of refined uh, pleasurable states to to its total opposite, total misery. Meditation in daily life. Now, uh, it's interesting to see what meditation has become in the West. I remember when I went, uh, I, when I, before I came to Britain, I was, uh, I'd been living in Asia for about 13 years and had never returned to uh, the States to see my parents. So then in 1976, I went, my mother was very ill, so I went back uh, to the States uh, and with the idea that possibly of, uh, you know, in the future, if there was enough interest, maybe trying to establish something in the United States, a Buddhist monastery. And while I was there, uh, I, since I hadn't been in the States for about 13 years, I'd, I would be invited to various uh, Buddhist groups, meditation groups that had formed. And one thing that did, and, and at that time, I noticed that, that not many Americans had, were really uh, meditating at that time. That was 1976. And, and so I went to lectures, I went to a lecture in uh, Massachusetts, in near Boston, and uh, there, uh, uh, you know, the American uh, uh, people that were listening to, it was a Japanese uh, Roshi who was giving a talk, and the, uh, the people that were listening were, were just all over the place, the most restless kind of people, you know, squirming and, and moving around, and uh, and uh, very uh, undignified behavior. I mean, they're listening to this this uh, Japanese Roshi who is the most impeccable kind of solid-looking figure uh, sitting in a chair 
standing complete, uh, sitting erect and completely composed. And he was very impressive. But all the rest of the people <coughs> looked like, um, you know, like a can of worms or something, just everything squirming and writhing. And so you know, I thought, Americans, you know, hopeless. <laughs> then going back a few years later, uh, and uh, to uh, to various meditation groups or, or giving uh, teachings or giving courses in the states, and I began to see these these American uh, meditators as very still, incredibly kind of poised and still bodies in a in a meditation hall, and uh, and I realized that over the years that the the effect of meditation had brought this kind of level of comp impressive composure to to many of my fellow countrymen, which was I was quite pleased to see that uh, that just that alone was that uh, Americans, instead of this endless restlessness that's so common to to American society, there was a measure of calm and and composure and and uh, collection taking place, and that I could see is very much needed in 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 that society, and, and people were longing for it, but uh, the society itself before that had never any uh, offered any kind of uh, possibilities for one to ever uh, develop in that way. And now, of course, there's uh, meditation centers all over the, over the United States, and, and people love to sit still. In fact, when you go to some of these meditation centers, they talk about sitting all the time. They don't talk about meditation anymore. They talk, they say, well, let's go and sit. And how many hours have you sat? And I went to Sri Lanka to sit. <laughs> so I spent six months sitting in Sri Lanka. <laughs> she didn't know what they meant. You think, this is a strange thing to be doing, you know, going all the way to Sri Lanka just to sit for six months. But then, but then, uh, I knew what they were talking about, that sitting had become meditation for people, that, the, that this, because of the stillness that the mind can, that, uh, uh, that you can uh, have in the sitting posture. You can sit still and then after a while as you, as you uh, practice some meditation technique, the, the thinking process tends to calm down, the emotions are uh, tranquilized and and you can uh, oftentimes have a quite a pleasurable or pleasant tranquilizing experience of sitting and then when you get up and as, but as soon as you start walking it all goes away in fact uh, some of these plays they tell me after after that they'll have uh, maybe uh, these long meditation retreats where they sit most of the time and and uh, after a few months, some of these people don't want to go back to New York or Philadelphia. They have to push them onto the coaches to get them out of the place. <laughs> because the, the, the actual th the thing is that the mind itself, once you once you begin to get in touch with the, beyond just the con conditioning of the mind, or the purity of the mind, the stillness of the mind, that is, that is the one of the, that is the, probably the most pleasant human experience that you can have. It's much better than, than uh, having a good time, having an exciting time. And it, it does take a different Attitude. I mean, like going out and having a good time, getting high, uh, having an exciting, absolutely absorbing, scintillating time means you you have to go out and seek something and do something, and try to sustain a level of of happiness and and hilarity in order to to feel that. And then it, uh, of course, it it, uh, it, that it takes a lot of effort and it's very exhausting to do it. But then the to to Get in touch with the stillness of the mind means that you, you don't go out, you go inward. Instead of going out on the town, instead of painting the town red, going out and seeking uh, uh, 
excitement, you go find some really quiet place where there's absolutely nothing exciting going on and sit down, close your eyes. And then you become a different kind of being. Oftentimes you, then you don't, anything that exciting comes along, you, 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 you feel uh, very upset when anything exciting happens. And once you, you and, and if you sustain that through, say, sensory deprivation, like controlling a situation where, where you don't allow any raucous noises or any disruptive activity to take place in a quiet, still hall where, where there's no, where, where it's completely, where it is completely silent. No one is allowed to talk and, and uh, everything is, is under control and you, and there's nothing to look at, nothing to listen to. So you, you can kind of, after a while, as you get used to that, you experience a, a, a blissful state that comes through uh, depriving the senses of stimulating uh, impingement. And that, of course, is, uh, is, 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 a, is a kind of happiness that, that we can e also become addicted to. We want a perm to live on a permanent meditation retreat We'd like to find a way of life in which we can just sit in this stillness and abide there and not, be c and not have all these worldly problems, responsibilities, disruptions, aggravations, uh, all these worldly problems coming at us. And so it's, uh, we, we, and it makes us very selfish, very uh, averse to, to doing anything other than just finding out when the next meditation retreat is taking place. But that's not what the Buddha meant either. He didn't, he wasn't teaching a kind of quietism of avoiding life and finding a place where you just cut yourself off from everything uh, that is distracting, disruptive or unpleasant. Because when we look at, at his own uh, example as recorded in the, in the Pali Canon, uh, we realize he, after his own enlightenment, he, he lived a very active life, really. Spent the rest of his life, uh, you know, going around uh, teaching, establishing order of monks and nuns, and, and having to deal with endless problems and disruptions and, and uh, worldly situations that, that uh, could be quite uh, horrible in themselves. And yet, the Buddha's meditation was something that was inside him. It wasn't dependent. His, his calm wasn't dependent on depriving the senses of stimulation, but being able to understand things as they are. So this is the aim of the Buddhist practice. It's not uh, a hermetic or, or aromatic uh, quietism uh, of drawing the world out and, and living in a place with no responsibility and no distraction but in being able to understand this form, this body that we have, our own body, our own sensitivity, uh, to be able to learn how to, to deal with emotional reactions, instinctual energies, through understanding them, not through control, not through trying to suppress or trying to get anything that you don't have, trying to to get something and hold on to it, but through this, this ability to understand, to reflect upon, to contemplate the way it is. So then, with this kind of knowledge, then the, this environment, the situation we're in is, is, we, we live in isn't the important issue. Our happiness, our, our peace of mind isn't dependent upon a quiet place anymore, or things being uh, harmonious, or everything going in a nice and, and easy way. In fact, we find that, that uh, say, in, uh, in it's interesting in the uh, establishing the Sangha here in Britain, uh, there was, of course, a longing, I think all of us, all of us who've become monks or nuns, are, you know, are the kind of people that long for this harmonious lifestyle. In a meditative lifestyle, where you, where you know, the ideal of it is everybody is is kind of 
working together, uh, practicing together, supporting each other's spiritual aspirations. And it sounds very idealistic and very wonderful in itself as a, as a theory, as, you know, on the, on the level of how it should be. But as an actual experience, uh, in mon monasteries, you've got, you've got to, you, you have to deal with your own karma, which is that even though you're living with some of the nicest people in the world, you still manage to hate them a lot of the time. No matter how good and moral and sincere they might be, they can still irritate you and and exasperate you, and you and uh, and one can feel you know completely uh, you know murderous impulses uh, sometimes towards some of the nicest people. Why is that? You know, it shouldn't be like that. We should all be these kind of saints that that are always you know. Our thoughts and our f emotions are always of the most uh, pure and 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 lovely uh, qualities. But yet, this is life, isn't it? In in learning to understand these things, we actually resolve these problems. And so that in meditation and daily life is where the meditation really needs to be focused. How to how to maintain a level of mindfulness and awareness and reflection in the uh, experiences that we have, in just the ordinary things we do in daily life. Now in a monastic uh, situation, that the whole monastic lifestyle is, is uh, built around that alone. It's really the Buddha established the, the discipline itself in a way that monks and nuns are uh, encouraged to reflect and contemplate themselves in a continuous way. Like the, 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 the advice is when you're putting on the robes, be fully with the action of putting on the robe. Mindful while putting on the robe. Mindful while taking off the robe. Mindful while taking, eating your food and washing your alms bowl. And all these, the, the most ordinary things that we do are pointed to in our discipline of how to to be aware and and uh, uh, and completely with what you you are doing, just the simple action of putting on your robe or taking it off or eating your food or washing your alms bowl. Now these aren't these are just the the, the part of a daily life. Of of here in in uh, in Amravati, uh, I've been trying to encourage the mindfulness around opening and closing doors without great success. <laughs> There's so many doors in this place. And this isn't in the Vinaya, that, and so they don't, I think they take it seriously because it's not written down. <laughs> I managed to make a few kind of horrendous growls about it now and then. But, uh, uh, but this, is, this is how we can bring attention to daily life, just, on the, just through going uh, through a door, through acknowledging or bringing into your consciousness what is actually taking place using a door as a as a as a something to to uh, give special emphasis to because in a country like this where we, we say and especially as it's getting cold getting on to winter um, doors become immediate uh, become more meaningful to us especially closed doors Washing the dishes. There's uh, another uh, good way of meditating in daily life because uh, people think, well, you know, I want, I, I have to wash the dishes, and but uh, uh, you know, uh, I'd really rather meditate. I didn't come here to wash the dishes. I came here to learn meditation. So you hear that? You know, washing the dishes is it keeps me from doing my practice, my meditation. And so we, instead of looking at washing the dishes as some chore that has to be done or that's kind of forced on you, you transform washing the dishes into a meditation. And so this is like taking some, some kind of very ordinary activity. And oftentimes activities that we tend to, to dismiss as just tedious chores or 
Uh, I remember, you know, like washing the dishes to me was because my mother used to force me to do it. Uh, I always had this aversion to it. You know, like because I my memories of it was that my mother would say, you have to wash the dishes and you'd always feel this resistance. I don't want to. And sometimes one never grows up out of that <laughs> resistance. <laughs> but <the laughs> instead, I... Here at Amravati, I've been, and when I get the chance, I do. The, I wash the dishes because I, I find that that's um, quite a pleasant task, really. And in, in the morning after the gruel, uh, uh, standing in the scullery, and in sometimes very sunny morning, and the sun streaming in through the windows, and have this nice hot water and suds, and uh, usually somebody else there to uh, is helping uh, to dry the dishes, and then you you. Uh, you know, you clean these these nice uh, utensils, these porcelain dishes, or or uh, steel pots, or whatever. And when you start looking at it in in a reflective way, even uh, sensually, it's quite it's a, a fairly pleasant thing to do, just as a sensual act of what you're actually touching and doing. Is I find sensually quite pleasing. It's not like a uh, a dirty, uh, nasty ugly feeling. Uh, and then the, uh, the situation, I find the, the scullery here quite a pleasant uh, place to be in anyway, physically, and, and so forth, that, that one is, is bringing into consciousness what's actually taking place, and using an attitude towards it that isn't just, we're not just caught up into the, an attitude and our bias towards it that we have, that we might be carrying with us. If I were to just operate from my uh, emotional reaction to the idea of washing the dishes that came up, say, from my childhood, then I, I could, you know, I can get out of it. I can say, I'm, I'm the abbot. <laughs> Abbots shouldn't be washing dishes. Nobody ever, ever asked me to wash the dishes anyways here. It's something you have to kind of <coughs> volunteer and, and insist upon. So it's not, not like something that's been, uh, that I'm kind of cornered into doing, something I deliberately go out and seek. Because, and, and, and because of that, my attitude towards it is not, I'm not coming from the, the little boy whose mummy is making him wash the dishes, but actually contemplating the situation as an experience, which is very different, because one isn't, one isn't coming from the bias and the assumptions and the re and the emotional reactions that one uh, say tends to carry, one c can carry on through one's life. If you're not mindful, if you're not aware of of yourself and how your mind works, I notice in uh, in uh, just like say getting up in the morning. There's another another one. Uh, we have to get up usually four o'clock in the morning. But the the um, the meditation starts at five o'clock in the morning. So you, they ring the bell at four, and then you've got an hour from four to five, uh, and so that uh, this can be this hour can be an hour where you think. Maybe I just need to get a few more minutes, <laughs> especially on a cold winter's morning. It's uh, difficult to get out from under the duvet and when it's cold out there. And, uh, and then the mind can, can find all kinds of rational excuses, reasonable excuses to, to just a few more minutes uh, because I might fall asleep in the meditation if I don't get, you know, 15 more minutes. Or noticing the, the mental state that you're in when you wake up. Like I noticed with myself, there would tend to be, uh, because of the, the, because you have been, one has been sleeping for a while, they, I think the, uh, the, the blood pressure is lower and, and there's this uh, a feeling of, of, you know, you're not very bright and alert when you first wake up. So, so there's, it's easy to go negative with that state. Uh, if, if I'm not mindful and careful when I wake up, then, the mind easily starts worrying, bringing up anything to worry about, go negative about. 
It will remember the previous day's problems or some, something that happened that was un particularly unpleasant or unwanted and the mind will, will kind of stay, that will linger around in, in the mind when you wake up and, and you can find just the, the, that just being in that state is quite, you know, you dread the day. You think, have another day having to do this and do that and, the, and because the, the mind is, is going into that negative direction then everything negative seems to spring from that. One can perceive the whole day uh, as being another exercise in boredom or misery. So then, because w w w with sati and sampachanya, one is reflecting on this, then you, how to how to change the direction instead of just being caught up in the in this habit and just you know doing things because the bell rings, you get up and and then you you go to the morning meditation at five because you have to because the uh, Ajahn Sumato will will. Uh, Give me a dirty look if I don't arrive at five, and and uh, and, and going through life just because uh, of bells ringing and social pressure. That's one way of doing it, isn't it? And just living, like say, living your life just because to to so people won't criticize you, and and you feel uh, you have to do these things, so you do them, or transforming them into acts of say that one enjoys, one finds, uh, say, enjoyment, or if one brings, finds uh, a sense of, of uh, positive attitude towards them. So I, uh, one way I used to, to do it was to, uh, instead of getting up at four, I'd get up at three. And I thought that will that would be more of a challenge than four. And then, then getting up at three, but doing things that, uh, you know, like that energize, like doing physical exercises, doing things that kind of get everything going, your blood circulating, your, your, your whole system kind of moving and, and throbbing, rather than kind of l uh, lolling about in a state of kind of semi-depression and, and low energy. So I, I would do various you know, like exercise, physical exercises, and and take a shower, or or uh, you know do do something, and then then to kind of sit and meditate for a while, or to to maybe read something appropriate to to prepare myself, prepare myself for the morning chanting, so that the morning chanting isn't just another thing that you have to do. You're going to drag yourself over and plunk yourself down and go through the, go through the morning chanting, but actually make it a feature of the day to where it's something that you, you, you kind of develop and cultivate morning chanting and meditation as something to, to treasure rather than just something you have to do if you're a monk. So this is what it, what I'm pointing to is changing one's attitude, because this we can do. We 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 can we can look at things in different ways. We can we can contemplate life from many angles, from different perspectives. Uh, the human mind is like that. We we're not just stuck with what we with what we have, uh, as just the you know this is this is the way I am and that's the only way I can be. Uh, kind of position, but it, we actually can contemplate our own existence, ask ourselves the questions, you know, who am I, what is the purpose of life, and, and, and we can actually change, we can deliberately choose to change our attitudes towards things. Not to just make ourselves uh, do it, but to, to change an attitude and then learn from that change. What is the result if I change my attitude towards washing the dishes? What is, what is the result if I change my attitude about waking up in the morning? And about, like, it the morning chanting can be seen as, as the thing you have to do. And then it becomes, because of that, that attitude, I have to do it. It's like mother telling you to wash the dishes. Uh, there's always this sense of resistance. Anything that you're kind of pressured into doing, one feels resistant to it. 
You know, you don't. You you, you might do it, but it, it's always there's a level of oh, I've got to do it. It's my duty, or I've got to set an example for the rest, or there's always some kind of unpleasant feeling about it that that makes it into some another added misery to your life. Or in itself, are any of these things miserable? Is morning chanting, getting up in the morning, washing the dishes, uh, closing the door, uh, or any of these, are any of these things uh, really awful, horrible experiences in themselves? You know, they just, you know, really like, like having to go down into the sewer and, and, uh, and uh, wade through excrement. Or is, are, these, are these just maybe, maybe they can be pleasant or unpleasant according to the, our attitude towards them? Well, I see them in that way. Most of, most of daily life is, is not particularly ha-ha pleasant in absolutely fascinating, wonderful, exciting uh, things that one does in daily life, nor is it uh, wading through a pit of excrement, absolutely horrible and, and dreadful. But it is, it is, it is neither particularly pleasant nor painful. And so our attitude towards it determines what it, what we t how we tend to experience it. And this past uh, meditation retreat for the community over the past week, the, the monks and the nuns have been, uh, had a week of, of meditation in the retreat center and emphasizing uh, positive thinking. Because this has been brought to my mind very strongly about it, the, uh, that sometimes in a monastic situation, it, life can, one can take it for granted. When, when anything like this becomes institutional, it becomes perfunctory. Uh, anything that you do repeatedly over and over again, just is it becomes habitual. Uh, and one learns how to do it, and then you kind of, Go d and you do it out of, out of habit, a kind of perfunctoriness, a deadening perfunctoriness that can uh, make our lives quite miserable when actually the quality of a monastic life is, uh, can be a very joyful experience. And that is making these, these ordinary mundane things that we do into something that we, we note, we 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 bring into our consciousness. We we we're we're looking at them now. We're feeling them. We're we're involved with what we're doing, even though it's a very simple thing like opening and closing a door, or it's or putting on your socks, or or washing the dishes. We're we're actually bringing attention and and learning how to just be with the act itself, bringing attention to the body, to the physical feeling that you have at that moment to, to, to use that as a foundation for mindfulness. And then to sustain uh, awareness on it, to, 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 to what you're doing, to be more aware, where you uh, realize where you tend to wander off and get caught up into just doing things in, and just doing things out of habit or wandering mind doing one thing and thinking about something else. Then the training is to, is to bring attention, to, to keep reminding yourself, to use your ability to reflect and to note and to realize things to, so that your attention is always coming back to the present, to the body itself, to the action, to the situation that you're involved with. And you're doing it not in, a, in the critical way of, of saying, doing the dishes is, is preventing me from doing my meditation, because then you, then you only see doing the dishes as some obstacle, something you have to get done in order to get to the real practice, get over there onto the zafu, the meditation cushion, and sit there and become one of those sitters, because washing the dishes is, is, uh, is a disruption, distraction from sitting. You can't sit and wash the dishes here. <laughs> Eventually, if you keep, if you develop, integrate.
practice in daily life like this, uh, everything becomes uh, the the meditation mandala. The whole one's life is 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 a is a continuous kind of meditation. And like like living here, uh, develop a mindful. Especially I know like walking from my room, which is on the other side of this courtyard, over to this reception room because I do that so many times a day that that has actually become quite a mindful uh, thing for me to do. And, and things, you know, the problems of monastic life and people coming and going and, and the difficulties of, uh, of things still affect your mind, but you can always compose yourself and when you, once you've established a, 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 a bodhi mandala or a, a place to be awake and, and alert, to be enlightened. So one can, I could just live the life here and just r running back and forth to my room from the reception room or the office, uh, just, uh, you know, doing that uh, just out of habit, or taking that particular uh, action and making it into a special practice. And by doing that, by bringing it up is a significant experience, then I'm bringing a kind of ordinary thing that I do many times a day into uh, a position of meditation. And so I don't feel deprived of, of the, uh, you know, I don't... Somehow living here at Amravati is, is an, and being abbot and having to, to go to the office, go to the reception room, uh, and so forth is in any way a disruption of my meditation. It's 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 incorporated. It's integrated into it. The life itself, the 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 eating practice, the the sleeping practice, the the monastic routine, the and even taking the the disruptions or the surprise experiences as part of the practice. When one gets uh, kind of addicted to tranquility, remember experiencing uh, in some of these uh, retreats that uh, where you you get very very calm and very quiet, and the meditation hall is just in completely still. Uh, everybody after a few days, and most everybody's feeling this calm, this level of tranquility, and the meditation hall then is is very still. And any kind of noise it seems to reverberate around the, the meditation hall. Somebody rustles their robe, or these little packets of tissues that uh, people have. They kind of you know, somebody uh, kind of fumbling into their bag and pulling out these crackly, irritating packets of Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> Or somebody's taking a pill of some sort with these, you know, these kind of modern ways that you kind of push a a pill through a, an aluminium barrier and you hear this crack. <laughs> <laughs> and in med <laughs> meditation hall, this this uh, you know sounds really loud, and and one can, and, and one and you can tell if you're very attached to this. Tranquility by the amount of noise you feel with the, with these sounds. And we, uh, years ago, when we had we had this uh, old nun who died last year, Sister Upla, but um, she used to go on these winter retreats with us. And uh, of course, she was she was quite deaf, and and she's getting on to ninety. And and of course. Uh, uh, some of her movements were quite uh, disruptive in the meditation sessions. And so, you know, one could feel this sense of aversion arising, thinking, I think it'd be better if Sister Upla stayed in her room to meditate. I think. And then, <laughs> because then you suddenly you wanted, you're getting so so attached to this level of silence, and 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 it made you. Even more kind of mean-hearted. It didn't instead of making you you nicer and more compassionate, you became more selfish. You, 
You wanted to get rid of her. <laughs> so then you contemplate this. Uh, is this, you know, is this the, of the right practice? Am I doing the right practice? <laughs> and so then contemplating th this, you know, changing the attitude to the fact, instead of going in wanting this tranquility and this total silence, regarding every disruption and everything as a as an opportunity for practice as something to to uh, to welcome something to to incorporate into your overall view of practice rather than thinking that you can't practice if the conditions aren't just a certain way of course this has some some dangerous results too because uh, uh, sometimes I'll, you know, I start out these retreats telling everyone, you know, everything that happens is a part of the practice. So whatever happens, uh, just regard it in that way. And a couple of years ago, uh, on the winter's retreat here, all kinds of things happened: the freeze, the the uh, the one uh, one person went a bit funny, and uh, all kinds. <laughs> <laughs> All kinds of things happen. I thought maybe a <laughs> or uh, another time in in Thailand. I was I was giving a retreat at the international monastery in Thailand, and and I said uh, at the beginning, the first night in the evening, I said whether there's a cyclone or a hurricane or whatever, it's a part of the practice. And that night there is a hurricane. <laughs> nearly blew down my cootie. <laughs> and everybody was blaming me for that hurricane. <laughs> Walking meditation also is uh, is um, helpful. It's, uh, the, the meditation the Buddha use the four postures, the sitting, posture, standing, walking, and lying down. These are the ordinary postures that we have in daily life. We're either in one of those postures, no matter where we are. So notice that they're, they're not extraordinary postures, like standing on your head or some, some very special posture. It's the very, they're, they're the ordinary ones that we all use throughout daily life. And the, the mindfulness is established around the ordinary postures and the, the, or the, and the breathing of the body. And so that the one's bringing attention to, uh, to, to life as it really is, rather than thinking that you've got to develop special qualities or special abilities in order to, to realize the truth, you're, instead of using that assumption that you have to develop and get something or get rid of things, you're, you're looking at it in a different way. You're, you're noticing how it really is. What is standing or walking like, you know, as an experience? How to sustain and hold your attention on yourself while you're walking on a meditation path. You can see and you go out in the field, uh, various places, or by the... Uh, the Nisoko Water Garden, uh, the uh, these diff these meditation paths uh, that uh, we've we've made. They may be about uh, twenty-five, thirty uh, of our steps, and then you you walk, you establish the 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 path as you know, twenty-five, thirty steps, and then then you uh, develop mindfulness walking from from one end of it to the other and back again, walking back and forth for an hour. And this, um, this is a, you know, the, a very boring thing to do if, you, if you're looking at it in, in that way. But if you're using it as, as something to reflect upon, something to contemplate and to bring attention, to train your mind to, to whenever it wanders off, starts getting caught up in its thoughts, wandering mind, you at that moment when you remember that that you you rec recollect that you're you're thinking about something else, 
then you train yourself to go back to what you're doing, to just the walking, the right, left, right, left foot touching the ground, and the, the points of stopping and starting, turning, are just noted, mentally noted, so that you're using just the form and the restriction of that particular situation to reflect upon and contemplate. And it's through this, this kind of training that we actually began to, uh, say, free ourselves from just the momentous momentum of our habits and attitudes and assumptions of life and begin to awaken to a, 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 a reality, to the reality of Dhamma, in which we, we transcend all the, the uh, confused uh, emotional problems and convoluted ways of thinking and endless uh, habits that we've acquired over the years uh, when we've just operated in life just through getting caught up into the material or conditioned world. So, this is on meditation in daily life. Si just sitting is not enough. Then today we had the uh, Indian community come here to offer dana, uh, and they've. Uh, this is a, a memorial day for a uh, great Indian uh, Buddhist doctor in Bedkar who, who. Uh, uh, became a Buddhist in 1956, on the uh, it was October 14th, 1956. Dr. Ambedkar converted, made a public conversion in the, the city of Nagpur, uh, and uh, advised, and he was from the, the uh, untouchable caste, uh, and he was a very well-educated man and tried to uplift, uh, and tried to establish uh, a proper role in the, the Hindu religion for his own people, but the, the caste system being so kind of fixed and rigid uh, in India, uh, the, uh, there was never allowed that people were always held back into these roles of untouchability. So uh, Dr. Ambedkar decided that, that Buddhism was the, was the only or really viable alternative to, to try to change the direction and lift uh, these people out of this uh, oppression. So in 1956, he, he made a public, he took the, f the three refuges and the five precepts and, uh, and advised all the, these uh, millions of people who are in the, these uh, low castes to, to make this conversion. So over the years now, there's been millions of Indians who have have uh, become Buddhists, and this is so. This is a celebration of Diksha Day. And then one of the irritating things that we all find is uh, in in uh, with uh, with a with with Buddhism in India is that uh, it the Hindus insist that Buddhism <coughs> is another form of Hinduism. And so, uh, and uh, I mean, the, the Indian people that were here today were telling me that they find this incredibly irritating. And, uh, and I, f I mean, I found it that way too. I mean, they, when I was in India, they insist, they say, oh yes, Buddhist monk, but Buddha was an avatar of Vishnu. And they kind of make these assumptions. And so the Indian community asked me to make a special reference today on, on, <laughs> on this issue of a relationship of Buddhism to Hinduism. And I think uh, that the, the Hindu tendency is to include Buddha within their, their system of avatars. Uh, but as far as Buddhists go, uh, we, we don't really regard it in that way. Because uh, uh, there's no reference in, the, in any of our scriptures at all to Buddha being an avatar of, of Vishnu or any other deity. In fact, uh, the emphasis that the Buddha made was th it's that whole tradition, uh, that whole kind of lineage of Buddhists, of Buddhas. Uh, we have a chant called the Adanadiya chant where we, we recite, it's called the 28 Buddhas, and there's a whole lineage of Buddhas prior to uh, Gautama the Buddha, 
or Shakyamuni Buddha of India, to uh, the, the, the our teacher from the what we know of Buddhism as it is today. But before that, there there's this whole list of 27 other Buddhas dating way back to who knows, maybe Atlantis or Lemuria. One, it boggles the imagination to to try to think it out. But what it's really saying in practical terms is that this awakened state of humanity, of a human being uh, has always been possible. You know, in, ev in whatever evolutionary state humanity's been in, this is, there's always been a Buddha appropriate to that level. And that this, this Buddha is, uh, is it represents the pure intelligence of the universe. It's not a, it's not a, like a, 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 a messiah image or a, a, a savior or a liberator or anything like that. It's, it's the, it's a, a teacher or one who establishes an appropriate means for liberation, uh, for a certain age. And the uh, Shakyamuni Buddha or Gotama the Buddha. Uh, established the Four Noble Truths uh, as the essential teaching. This was 2,537 years ago in India. And this, this teaching is what we use. This is the main practice, like here, when in the, uh, in the especially in the Theravada form of Buddhism, the uh, Four Noble Truths is the very, is, the, is really the, the thrust and the, the, the uh, essential teaching and the and it can and it is the establishment of the universal pattern of existence because in the four noble truths you have the 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 truth of the, the the arising and the cessation of the condition of any condition so it's a when we meditate we're contemplating this pattern this impermanent uh the the pattern of impermanence as it relates to everything that we're experiencing through the senses. And this teaching is, is a, a teaching that was established uh, some there are various uh, theories, but one that seems generally taken for granted is for 5,000 years this teaching will, will exist. Uh, and so we've, we've reached 2,537 years. <laughs> And it was in 1956 that there was the Buddhist Jayanti, the 2,500th year of Buddhism in the world, uh, and Buddhism as we know it. And that was the year uh, Dr. Ambedkar made his uh, profound statement and conversion. And uh, when we look back, I was telling the Indian community early this morning how that year, 1956, seemed to be a, a year that many the English Sangha Trust was established here in Britain, and uh, uh, I think that was about the time I became a Buddhist, 1956, and there seems to be a, 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 a sudden kind of upsurge of interest in West and in India in, uh, in, the, in, in Buddhism, and especially in Buddhist meditation. Countries like Thailand also, we began to, there was suddenly a shift from just ceremony, Buddhist ceremony and custom into meditation practice. Even in the Buddhist countries themselves, there seemed to be something changing from just the kind of ruts of, because uh, any religion can easily sink into just being ceremonies and, and, and just academic uh, approaches to, uh, but in 1956, I know in uh, Thailand there was suddenly an interest beginning growing interest among Thai Buddhists to actually practice meditation, return to the actual practice. But in our relationships with other religions, uh, say with the Hindus or the Christians or the Muslims, it's uh, the attitude is always, uh, say, one of, of listening and non-controversy. Non no use, no use uh, kind of punching them in the nose or telling them off. If they want to think we're Hindus, go ahead and let them. Because, but but in, uh, in our own minds, we're, uh, you know, this is not really terribly important because 
the the practice, the way of of looking at and at dhamma is the important issue, not the particular customs and and attitudes of uh, of our own tradition or any other religious tradition. Because I was brought up as a Christian, where they think every religion is wrong, except uh, I mean they wouldn't include you; they just throw you out. <laughs> So now I think it's time for tea, and I want to invite everybody to have a cup of tea in uh, 20 minutes. We can, for those of you who have the time and the inclination to uh, come back, and we can have a dialogue.